I'm with Bob, Kilo Kilo, Six Echo Kilo, Heard Island. What was it like? Uh, Heard Island is an extraordinary place. If you, if, you, if you haven't experienced something like it, you, you have no concept. It's a big place, and it's, it's, uh, it's a very challenging place physically to do any useful work. So it, re- it requires a lot of planning. This project was three years in the planning and preparation. And uh, as you know now, it went off, I can't say flawlessly, but without any major problem. And that's because um, uh, I had the advantage of being there 20 years ago on a previous expedition. So we knew more or less what to expect. And uh, even so, it was um, the weather was very challenging, cold, windy. Um, we, uh, we had a certain amount of mechanical difficulties with generators and tent heaters. But overall, it, was, it worked well enough so that we succeeded in our major goals. And if you can't get perfect, then close enough is just fine. And that's, that's what we got. Close enough to perfect to be really happy about it. And we're very happy right now. So how does a, an expedition like this start? How does the germ begin, you know, three years ago? Well, there's a relatively small number of people, I'm one of them, who uh, do expeditions. Now, there's a, there's a group within the radio amateur radio community, and they do de-expeditions, and I've done de-expeditions. This is radio only. But I, um, my, over my life, I've done many expeditions. The difference is there may be a scientific component or other activities in the project. So this was an expedition. In fact, all of those that I do are expeditions. So it involves amateur radio plus some other activities. How does it start? Uh, these people that I referred to, this small, relatively small, probably a hundred people worldwide who, um, who know what it takes to do one of the, just have an idea. In my case, I had been to Heard Island before in 1997, and I became obsessed with this place. And so for 20 years, I've lived with this obsession of going back. Finally, when the time seemed right, um, I, the decision just happened. Okay, about three years ago, I said, I'm going back. And this is the result. All right, so you put together a plan, you figure out what you need in terms of equipment, and you figure out how you're going to get there and how many people you do, and you set up a budget. What happens then? Actually, the budget comes first uh, because you have to have enough experience to know what this is going to cost. The budget then will actually determine the team size because uh, people like like this team here are not going to put in $35,000. They might put in... $14,000. In this case, it was $18,000, which is highest of any previous de-expedition. So given the total budget, and the budget is really determined by the transportation, the ship that you can get if you're going to an island, which all these are. Um, So then you have a team size, and then you go about finding people who have, in most cases, five weeks off. So the group that went to Amsterdam, they needed five weeks off. And there are quite a few working people who can find that time but in this case it took seven weeks into eight weeks and that really cut down on the number of candidates who could potentially uh, contemplate doing this the 14 that you see uh, here are people some of them retired some uh, worked uh, permission through their employers some are between jobs we have a brand new PhD uh, who just deliberately did not seek a job so that he could do this. 
So um, the team building then occurs and uh, you start going out for uh, uh, soliciting support. The major support for the amateur radio comes from major foundations such as the Northern California DX Foundation, uh, German DX Foundation, um, Indexa and so on. Then there are literally hundreds. We have probably now 1,500 individual hams who have put in 10, 15, 20, often $100, sometimes 300. One ham put in $10,000. And from that, all together, you, you try and match the expenses, the budget. Of course, uh, it's double entry bookkeeping. You have to have expenses and income match. Um, I'm, I'm very happy and proud to, to say that um, because of the team and because of the nature of the project, not, not me acting alone, but because of the project, it was six months ago that we basically turned into the black financially. We knew that we would succeed with fundraising. And um, because of that, as we got closer, we set the price for the QSL cards at only $5, which is relatively low compared to some other groups because we've done so well with the fundraising because people believe in this project and believe that it could be done and successfully so. So what was the overall budget for this project? About $450,000. Most of that was to the boat, of course. Okay, and, and what about your equipment and antennas and tents and, you know, internet connectivity and things like that? We had a lot of uh, corporate sponsors. Um, Elecraft provided the radios and some of the amplifiers. Uh, DX Engineering and others, um, Dave K3EL, the radio team leader, provided or had access to a lot of the antennas, our Foursquare arrays and so on. Then the tents, um, you know, we used, um, for the first time, we used uh, tents made by HDT Global. These are called Airbeam. You um, you have basically inner tubes inside the canvas. You lay it out on the ground, turn on the air compressor, and the thing blows up in 15-20 minutes, and you've got a tent. And it's very strong, has a high wind su survivability, and it was roomy. These were 20 by 21 feet. We had two of them uh, separated by a hallway about 10 feet long. It worked beautifully, uh, and I think that uh, other groups will probably use those. Those were provided free to us, so we didn't have to raise that component of probably $50,000. And I understand they were designed specifically for you. Uh, no, they weren't designed for us. Uh, they were put together for us. These are kind of loaners that the company uses for um, projects that... that the, the the agreement sort of is we're going to give them feedback on how well they worked and what comments we had as well as they can use it in sales because they're a commercial company. And, and you so also had a, you had a, an internet connection supported and supplied by uh, Inmarsat. That's that's right. Um, we went to in Inmarsat and um, asked if they could support us. <clears throat> they provided uh, four began terminals, which have relatively high bandwidth, high speed. Uh, we had two hand, uh, uh, handset, uh, ISAT telephone, and then we rented three Iridium satellite phones. So we had a lot of connection, uh, a lot of communication. And as you, as you saw, um, we had basically an open access to the internet. We could watch our own program, DXA, which is the real-time um, uh, radio on online log. We could, we could search the web, we could download manuals when we needed it, we could send email to uh, people that needed information or just get messages from wives and, and sweethearts and so on. So I think we were probably 
we're not the first to have a satellite connection because I did that in 2005 and earlier, back in 1995. But we were the first to have high bandwidth, full, unlimited access, and it was courtesy of Inmarsat. Thank you very much, Inmarsat. So what other resources did you have at your fingertips as a result of you know all this logistics and all of this planning and and you know actually putting together something that was more than a de-expedition well uh i i i thank you for uh, for that phraseology this was more than a de-expedition this was what i call an expedition and the difference is in a de-expedition there's only radio operations and so you have only one set of technology and resources to deal with in an expedition not only do you have other activities, and in our case it was exploring and collecting uh, documented samples and so on, but you have a different set of potential threats. And so safety is always number one priority. And if you've got people out in the field, they're not sitting in a tent working pileups. And so this is a different kind of project. An expedition is a, is a different kind of a project. Now, how could we do this? A good part of it was because the Braveheart provided so much support to us, the, the vessel. Um, they had a crew of six. They have a lot of experience. I think we were number 14 de-expedition for them. But they worked like team members. They were team members. I regard them as team Cordell Expeditions, Heard Island, 2016, team members. There were 20 of us, the boat and the Cordell team. And uh, between those, those 20 people, uh, it turned out that kind of automatically a large n fraction of those people automatically took responsibility for one particular uh, aspect of the project, such as the galley or the, or the uh, antennas uh, or the power supply, the, the generators, and so on. So it, it sort of evolved naturally, but that's always a result of um, a lot of planning, which we did. What was your fondest memory? The fondest memory for me, uh, ironically, was not a radio event. It was not a contact with, although we, uh, one of them was that I made a, a, a CUSO with, um, with one of my team members from 1997. He was on VK0IR with me, and he's an Australian. Um, and uh, so that was a thrill. But uh, as I said, we had other goals. We had scientific goals that, that to collect specimens. So had the chance to be taken by the vessel, which which moved to the other end of the island. Actually, they moved to to bring keep the boat safe from northerly winds, which were threatening. But there's a big lagoon down there that less than 10 years ago, seven years ago, was a glacier. The entire lagoon was a glacier. And now that glacier is almost all melted away. It's a lagoon. It communicates with the ocean. So there's there's incursion of marine species, marine water. And no one has ever been in that lagoon yet. So we had a window, a, a break in the weather of two hours. And due to the skill of the, um, of the small boat driver from the Braveheart, he took uh, three of us, three on, on my team, into the lagoon. Uh, we immediately started collecting specimens and taking photographs everywhere. This was had to be a high point in my entire scientific research field research career and uh, they gave us another hour and then another hour so we had all together four hours before we had to run for our lives literally breaking through six foot breakers that broke on our boat and threatened to swamp us to get back to the Braveheart due to the skill of the 
the Braveheart crew. Uh, we got in, we got the samples and we got and the photographs and we got back. So that has to be one of the high points, not only of this expedition, but of all of the 35 years I've done expeditions. What kind of tip would you give to somebody who's, who's listening to this story and is wanting to know about expeditions and de-expeditions? They operate their shack at yeah. home and they've worked a couple of yeah. you know, remote stations. How do they go about getting from the glint in their eye to the next step? Well, uh, that's, a, that's really a good question. I'm glad to, to answer it. In my particular case, I had done scientific expeditions for, for a decade, two decades before. So I came in as an experienced expedition planner in the sense differentiating from a de-expedition. But, but for the person you just described, the path, the easiest path, I think, is go to an island somewhere nearby and activate an IOTA, um, the Islands on the Air uh, event. It would be relatively modest, but it gives credentials. And you're, you're not going to be able to, to uh, approach a sort of a world-class expedition and say, here, I'd like to go, unless they really need people and money. Um, because they're, you know, these, you, experience matters in these things. So how do you get that experience? Go to, a, go to an island activate it go go to a bigger island take a, a friend build up from there within a year two three you'll, there'll be a resume there'll be an experience and from that point on it, you probably get invited to be part of a bigger project and um, this is sort of where those that growth of projects ends um, uh, I believe that Hurt Island is the hardest of all places to activate for DXCC it's hard not because of the physical conditions, although it's very hard for that, but it's hardest because of the procedures that you have to go through. It's a protected area, multiple layers of protection. It's the most expensive ever done. It's the most expensive cost to the team members. It took three years to make this one happen. And uh, I, think, I think for that reason, no one should expect to come from 100 watts on a dipole into a big hard one like this. But if they're determined, they can make it. So, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It's a great pleasure. Thanks. Bob, KK6 Echo Kilo, and you're listening to News West.